Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Welcome. Um, Before we start, I'd like to do what we always do and acknowledge that we are on the never-ceded land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's on their lands that the University of Sydney is built. This has been a place of gathering, a place of meeting, a place of learning, a place of learning about the relationship between human and non-human, human and human, uh, for over 60,000 years. So I want to acknowledge that knowledge, that tradition, and elders past, present, and emerging. My name is David Schlossberg. I am a professor of environmental politics here at the University of Sydney. I'm also the director of the Sydney Environment Institute, which is a co-host of this evening. Tonight is one of a series of events that is running here at the university through the 21st of June. We have eight full days of activity on the general topic of multi-species justice. The overall idea of the project was actually summed up best, I think, by our Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research, Duncan Iveson, who said on Twitter, no less, who said, if we're going to find new ways to live on this planet without destroying it, we'll need to think differently, morally, politically, legally, about our relationship to the natural world. So for many of us, the central questions are about how we think about these relationships in the context of justice. And justice is obviously something we normally apply to human beings alone, but human behavior is obviously having an impact on the lives of other beings and other systems. So our task in this research group is to explore if and how ideas of justice can help us understand and rethink these relationships and these impacts. So this week and next, our project includes a number of symposia on a number of themes, on place and non-humans and the impacts of climate change, on economic justice, human and non-human, on the moral, legal, and political status of humans, animals, and environment, and on extinction and biocultural preservation. There are two big public events tonight, thanks for coming, uh, on economic and social justice in a climate-changed world, and then again next Wednesday evening on biodiversity, extinction, uh, and justice. Um, And then before we start, I do have to say a number of thanks uh, to those who are supporting this multi-species justice project in a number of ways. Um, First has to go to Danny Selmior, who is the the intellectual lead on the project and uh, and partner. Uh, I have to thank the co-producer of this evening, uh, Dinesh Waterwell, uh, who's also a part of our multi-species collective. I have to thank Gemma Viney for her incredible work uh, as our research assistant, organizing just about everything. Uh, and then, of course, I have to thank the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. This is one of the new buildings Uh, social science building, but uh, Arts and Social Sciences has a new program called Future Fix, uh, and the Multi-Species Justice Project is one of the highlighted research projects of the faculty. So thanks to the faculty and also to my organization, to um, the Sydney Environment Institute, um, which, like I said, is 
sort of producing a number of these events. And so thanks to all the staff at SEI, as well, Eloise Fetterplay, Charlotte Owens, Liberty Lawson, and the incomparable Michelle St. Anne. Tonight, the focus is again specifically on climate change and economic justice in the con or climate justice and economic justice in the context of climate change. What does that mean? What are the issues of justice and the onset and increase of climate change on the environments in which we live and work? So justice can be about inequity, it can be about inequality, the unequal distribution of the impacts and costs of climate change. The most obvious way that people talk about climate injustice is the fact that there are some countries that have been the biggest contributors to our changing climate. And those are not necessarily the countries or the people in those countries who will feel the biggest impacts of those changes. So there's an inequity in the cause and the result. There's also the issue that some countries, like Australia, have more capacity to address the impacts of climate change, uh, more so than others. But we also have to remember that in any place, in any, in any country, even in rich countries like Australia, it is the poor who will be most impacted by climate change. The already poor will be impacted by climate change. We know, for example, that one of the major impacts in Australia of climate change will be increased heat waves, increased frequency of heat waves, increased temperatures. And we also know that the people who die in heat waves are poor people who live alone. Rich people do not die in heat waves. They just crank up the air. But justice means a lot more than inequity, and climate and economic injustice impacts more than human beings. So some of the questions are whether or not mass fish die-offs that we're seeing here are injustices or not. Is it an injustice when flying foxes fall dead out of trees in Queensland or New South Wales? Is the growing bleaching and death of coral in the Great Barrier Reef an injustice? And then is it an injustice not just to impact human and non-human communities inequitably, but is it an injustice to ignore those impacts? Is denial or delay, or lack of recognition and injustice? Is it an injustice that those most affected by climate change have not had a say in decisions about their environments or about their economic futures? And then is that lack of say, that participation, that procedural justice in a system of justice, should that include affected environments like rivers or reefs or forests themselves? So the idea of justice is difficult to define. There are a lot of academic careers focused just on that one question. And we've decided to make those questions even more difficult uh, by talking about climate change, by talking about non-humans, and the environments on which all of our lives depend, and uh, to include that in the discussion. Then, of course, you sent us your questions when you signed up for this event. Many asked for practical solutions. We'll give that a shot. Um, so we have a lot to cover in the next 90 minutes. But we also wanted to find out, we, ha we asked this question, what do you want to learn? But what we didn't ask is, why are you here? Right? Why are you interested? Right? What motivates you? So I just want a show of hands. So is it social justice that's a motivator? Is that why you chose this evening to come? Hands? Is it the idea of multi-species justice that just made you really curious? All right. 
or is it just climate change and climate change impacts? That's a good split. I think we got just about everybody there. We'll try and cover as much as we can over the course of the evening. So here's how things are going to work. I'm going to introduce our speakers. That's it for me. I'll shut up, though I will ask some questions in a bit. Uh, I'll introduce all of our speakers briefly. They'll give some short presentations, max 10 minutes, um, and then they'll join me on these nice comfy chairs. Um, so I'll introduce folks in the order that they're going to come up, and then they'll just come up one at a time. And it's quite a treat, I have to say, uh, this evening. Professor Petra Chackert is a centenary professor in rural development at the University of Western Australia. Her research activities and practice focus broadly on human environment interactions and more specifically on rural livelihoods, environmental and climate change, marginalization, loss, social learning, and deliberate societal transformation. And she's also been an ongoing contributor to the IPCC reports, including the recent uh, 1.5 degree report. Second up is Dr. Kritika um, sorry, Srinivasan from the University of Edinburgh. And her research and teaching interests lie at the intersection of political ecology, post-development politics, and animal studies. Over the years, her work has spanned uh, conservation and animal welfare politics, disasters and vulnerability, the politics of knowledge, Foucauldian biopolitics, and urban sanitation. We're going to find a number of overlaps between people's interests here tonight. Um, her research revolves around intersectional approaches to social, ecological, and animal justice. Uh, third up is Dr. Mon Barua from the University of Cambridge. He's a cultural and environmental geographer with an interest in the spaces, politics, and governance of the living and material world. His research interests include urban ecology, more than human geographies, biodiversity conservation, and the politics of lively capital. He's recently commenced a major five-year uh, grant on urban ecologies and the governance of global cities, and I think that's the topic uh, of his talk this evening. And then last up is Professor Makiri Stewart Harawira. She's a professor of Indigenous Environmental and Global Studies at the University of Alberta in Canada. She's director of the Traditional Medicine and Indigenous Health Council of the Integrative Health Institute at the University of Alberta. And from 2015 to 2018, she convened the Intersections of Sustainability Transdisciplinary Research Network on Climate Change, Water Governance, and Community Futures there. So it's quite a range of folks we have for you. Uh, we'll let them speak, and then we'll come together and have a conversation. Petra. Well, good evening. I'm delighted to be here. I have the honor to provide that introduction to climate change and to climate justice. Let's start by taking stock. 2009, 10 years ago, maybe several of you have seen this fantastic movie. It was called The Age of Stupid. came out in March and triggered quite a lot of excitement about what ought to be done to tackle climate change. And it looked from the perspective of 2055 and asked, why didn't we stop climate change when we still had the chance? So a lot of community excitement, enthusiasm in the lead up to Copenhagen, the 2009 Conference of the Parties, that of course started with that hope. Copenhagen became Hopenhagen, and then when it became clear that the talks would fail, it became Broken Hagen. So that was 10 years ago. Since then, 
many of you, probably all of you know, we have the Paris Climate Agreement that tells us that we ought to hold the increase of global average temperature well below two degrees above pre-industrial times, and even better if we can at 1.5. And you may think, well, the difference between 1.5 and two is negligible. Of course, it makes a huge difference. The small island states, small island development states have had a mission to say 1.5, to stay alive, that's their slogan. And Desmond Tutu, who you see here, has argued for a long time that two degrees, which was considered safe at a certain point, was in fact cooking the African continent. So 1.5 matters. The Paris Agreement has pledges, promises, that countries have made to reach that goal. And what you see here is a, well, a little check-in of where we are. We really ought to be here in that green to be well below two. We do know that these pledges and targets that every country has put forward, if we add them up, they will amount to three degrees, so way above the target that we have in mind. And if we think about current policies, we're even higher than that. So there's already a problem built in just by looking at that thermometer. Even more so, and this gets us to the first instance of injustice, is well, where we are in terms of countries and their individual pledges. So you can see the dark one, critically insufficient. So we have the United States there, we also have Russia there. Um, highly insufficient, Canada, China included, Argentina. Insufficient, Australia is part of the orange ones. And if your eyes are really sharp, you will detect three. Well, actually it's, it's two, but in fact three. Morocco with the occupied Western Sahara and that tiny little country called the Gambia that are the only ones that are actually compatible with the 1.5 agreement. So we have a huge disparity here and it makes me worry and it makes several of us here in the room worry. In addition to that, we have not only the disparities here, but we also have gaps between the pledges made and individual countries' responsibility, historic responsibility given past emissions, and what David already mentioned, the capacity to act. And this gap between the pledges and the responsibility and capacity to act, which is enshrined in something we call fair share emission reduction or reductions, is particularly large in affluent countries. Right? So we've got a problem here. Now, Having worked on the IPCC special report on 1.5, this is kind of the standard graphic that shows us whether or not we are on track to 1.5. So we are here right now, 1.1 above pre-industrial times in terms of warming. If we keep going the way we're going now, we're going to way past the two degree goal, not even the one, well, definitely the 1.5, but even the two degree goal. And this nice little curve is the one that we should follow. It looks so simple, right? Let's just follow this little curve. What of course you don't see in here is, well, that's a global average that takes into account all temperatures over land and over the oceans. It does not take into account the heat waves, for example, and the extreme flooding that Australia experienced at the beginning of the year. And it doesn't take into account what is really worrisome, which is what we call the overshoot. The likelihood that we're going to go past 1.5, maybe even two, and then with draconic measures, 
force our way down towards 1.5 by the end of the century, every overshoot includes the possibility of irreversible changes to human, human ecological, social ecological systems. For example, two degrees over would mean eight degrees over in the Arctic. So 1.5 is not safe. We have regional differences. In this case, we have differences for the Arctic system, system, not only the people who live there, but the ecosystem. We call this a unique and threatened system. Coral reefs here in Australia and worldwide, particularly the warm coral reefs. And we, if we overlay that with systemic vulnerability, the vulnerability that is built into every society, built into every ecosystem, we have the flying foxes that just don't tolerate 42 degrees. They die. And systemic inequality and marginalization and disadvantage built into every society. It's not just the poor, it's those who are socioeconomically, institutionally, politically disadvantaged and marginalized, often along the axis of gender, age, race, ethnicity, class, and so on. Right, so this is where it really hurts. And you can see these bars here that show risk or anticipated impacts. Red, very high. Purple, extremely high. So these are definitely not 1.5 safe. In addition, we have injustices that are likely to result from the very ambitious and stringent mitigation action that we do have to follow. If we want to have any chance to reach the 1.5 goal, emission reduction is fundamental. However, there's a lot of talk about what is called negative emissions. So continuing emission emissions as we have them now and then finding technical ways fixes to bring the emissions down into geological structures or into water. And one of those that scares us most is called BECS, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. So the idea here is to plant as many trees as possible over as much land as possible, because trees of course absorb carbon, then we cut them down to produce energy and the emi emis emissions that emerge are not going to go up in the atmosphere, but are stored in some underwater structures. So this may sound like, wow, wonderful solution, when in fact, it's absolutely not proven. And you already guess, well, where is all that land going to come from on which we're going to plant all those trees? Um, it's not going to happen in Europe. Trees grow particularly fast in the tropics. And the example here, of course, is um, from people whose land most likely is going to taken. These are people who cannot sustain their own livelihoods, where food insecurity is high, where we would have a continuous um, uh, sequence building on historic <laughs> and colonial dispossession and exploitation. So there are risks and vulnerabilities both in action and in inaction. The problem here of course is the way we live, the way we live our lives, our lifestyles, and the disengagement we have in our complicity with the exploitation of the resources on which we depend. So the idea is to think about safe and just spaces for humanity and beyond. Not just to think about the planetary boundaries where we know we have already exceeded the safe space for well, in climate change and for biodiversity and extinction, but to also think about the social foundation that is needed. Now, Thinking about the social foundation is exceedingly difficult when we understand 
growing inequality, the gap between the rich and the poor, Oxfam report 2019 says that very explicitly. It also becomes apparent when we think about the sustainable development goals and the differences. And you may find many things wrong with the sustainable development goals, and that's fair, but it's the only metric we have right now to understand how we are tracking. This is OECD countries, the richer ones. Australia is up first. What you can see is a traffic light. Green means we're getting there to meet the goal or goals in 2030. Red is we're no way close. This is in comparison our sub-Saharan African countries. And you can see the mismatch and inequality here. The one in red here is climate. We want to look at the following two, life below water and life on land. We can always see the discrepancies. So what do we want? We want climate resilient development pathways that take into account different levels of development that do imply options. You can see various ways here, but we want to get here to climate resilience. We want to meet at a minimum all the SDGs, reach net zero, limit warming to 1.5, and achieve equity for all. That cannot happen with global models. These pathways need to be negotiated. This is the everyday politics of understanding trade-offs of what we value, what we care about, what our aspirations and our hopes and our dreams are, and what we're willing to fight for. So it needs to be debated here and everywhere. And to end, this is the challenge I want to lay out in front of all of us here. Can we conceive climate resilient and climate justice pass pathways to 1.5? Can we radically reduce emissions by 2030 and reach net zero emissions by 2040, 2050 without undermining human and non-human rights and well-being and flourishing for all, while nonetheless maintaining a sense of hope, care, and dignity? Thank you. So hello. Um, let me start by saying that I am most acutely aware of the con contradictions inherent in my speaking at a climate change event after having traveled here from the UK. So now I have no adequate justification for having done so, and I will not even try to explain myself to you. But it is precisely such contradictions that I would like to think through with all of you in this talk. Now these contradictions are a key feature of this period that have that has come to be referred to as the Anthropocene, a term that all of you are familiar with. Yeah. Now, the naming of this geological epoch as the Anthropocene rests on the negative impacts that contemporary human lifestyles have had on the planet and the other creatures that we share it with. Climate change, species extinction, habitat loss, these are all some issues that are emblematic of these times and the concerns that preoccupy us. But alongside these negative impacts, sits the exact opposite, significant and widespread public concern and action about the adverse consequences and ethical implications of humankind's interactions with non-human nature. This can be seen most obviously in the diversity of environmental and animal protection movements and legislations that one sees across the globe, but also in lesser noticed everyday actions and debate, and can also be seen in the number of people who are here in this room today. Now, such positive action for the environment has one thing in common with those actions that adversely impact non-human nature, and that is good intentions and the desire to better human life. 
And it is this that I'd like us to consider and reflect on. Climate change and any other environmental problem that you can think of are the outcomes of good intentions. It is not bad people or ill intentions that have produced the Anthropocene. Rather, it is the side effect of collective societal efforts to improve human life, what is commonly referred to as development. Whether intensive agriculture, concrete buildings, trains and cars, or flush toilets, these are all activities that have the raison d'etre of human well-being, but at the same time, undermine it through unintended consequences. I'd like to suggest that these negative consequences emerge from a particular vision of human well-being that underpins these good intentions. Human well-being as something that is achieved through insulation from the risks and vulnerabilities that are inherent to living as part of nature, and by finding fulfillment in going beyond our capacities as biological organisms. Now, achieving human well-being through development is about amplifying those human features that are believed to be maximally different from to different to other animals, creating institutions that maintain that distinction, and improving societies that do not meet these standards. It rests on a vision of humanity as superman. Think about those things that are considered uh, essential to a good human life, right, in contemporary times. A long life, housing that protects us from the vagaries of the weather and elements, ready and assured access to food, healthcare that protects us from pathogens, cancerous cells and other threats, and also education, internet access, energy power transport, the occasional holiday, clothes, phones, computers. I'm not talking about diamonds, I'm not talking about uh, expensive gadgets, I'm just talking about the basic things. Now, the process in, involved in securing each and every one of these things exploits nature and also harms vulnerable human communities. They have ecological and social justice implications. Animal agriculture, for example, is one of the biggest drivers of habitat loss and one of the biggest anthropogenic causes of climate change. It also has food security implications because of the diversion of food crops and land to the production of higher value animal source foods, thereby taking them away from, uh, from, food, uh, from the production of food crops that are more accessible to marginal human communities. Now, marginal human communities are regularly displaced by industrial mining, plantation, and power projects that also devastate non-human life and biophysical processes. Such social and ecological displacement is not motivated by nefarious intentions, but by rationalities of the greater good, of societal betterment and overall development. All these proceeds are aimed at securing, like I said, a certain vision of human well-being, of a good human life as something that involves, that involves being insulated from and separate to the rest of nature. When we see people living in huts, the immediate response is to uplift them to standards of human life that are considered acceptable. When it comes to those people who are adversely affected by development projects, the argument goes that the benefits of development will eventually trickle down to them. As for nature, this is where environmental action steps in to try to protect, manage, or undo some of the ill effects of these activities. And the most recent example in Australia is there on the front page of the newspapers today. <clears throat> but as the Anthropocene and continued human suffering across the world have shown, upliftment trickle-down development and environmental protection work do not act as they are meant to. The complex ramifications of our actions 
always exceed our knowledge and control. Compensatory afforestation or carbon offsets are not effective substitutes for the landscapes and atmospheres that were damaged in the first place. As the previous speaker just showed, carbon climate change negotiations have failed to bring about the changes that are see, now accepted to be absolutely necessary for the survival of life as we know it. Rewilding programs are met with failure across the world, without exception. In effect, the history of the Anthropocene is embedded in a history of good intentions that have had unexpected consequences that cannot be easily resolved. It is because of this constant back and forth between doing harm through proceeds of improvement and trying to undo or mitigate such harm that we find ourselves in these times of extreme but highly uneven prosperity on the one hand and extreme current and future vulnerability on the other. It is an era of extreme inequality where some people benefit at the cost of the majority of the other human and non-human life forms on the planet. In such a context, it seems to me that we need to reach beyond the pendulum of harm and protect to be able to create meaningful pathways to multi-species justice in a climate changed world. What do I mean by this? I've argued so far, or I've tried to argue so far, that the social and ecological crises of the Anthropocene, including climate change, are linked to the pursuit of a particular positive vision of human well-being, of a good human life as something that involves, that involves being insulated from and separate to the rest of nature. Now, this makes the task of responding to the justice implications of the Anthropocene much harder. Those activities that have cost the Anthropocene, that have cost environmental problems, are geared towards improving human life. As such, it becomes futile to tackle these activities without querying the vision of humanity that they are directed by. So what do we do? I wonder if what is needed is a fundamental resetting of existing visions of human well-being. Moving from a vision of a good human life as involving super people who are carefully insulated from the vulnerabilities inherent in living on this planet, we need to ask what it means to live as part of nature on the planet and more equitably distribute the risks of living on this earth so that these risks are not borne disproportionately by marginal people and by nature. Now, this might entail upturning some of our most basic ideas of well-being is. It remains unimaginable to most of us that humans should live like the rest of nature, like other animals, with shorter lifespans, perhaps, and unsupported by the infrastructures of engineering and medicine that we've all come to take for granted and that insulate most societies from nature. If anything, existing notions of human well-being require the upliftment of those who are less insulated from nature to meet the norms and standards of those who are more ins insulated. That's what development is all about. Existing notions of humanity and of human well-being require variations within humanity to be smoothened out by bringing the fruits of development to everyone everywhere. So how can we invert the logics of development and current visions of human well-being so as to relocate within nature those humans, people like us, who lead the most insulated lives? Instead of trying to uplift and develop the poor, how can we learn from their everyday practices to live gently and tread lightly on the planet? 
Now, I've struggled with these thought experiments, for they're very far from how we have been schooled to think about ourselves and the other beings that we share our species identity with. So I will leave you with two questions instead of any answers. How can we resituate the human in the rest of nature? How do we reconceptualize human well-being to bring it into closer alignment with the well-being of the rest of nature, into closer alignment with the well-being of the other creatures, human and non-human, that inhabit the planet? Thank you. Okay, I don't have slides and neither am I a professor, but uh, I'm going to be um, talking about um, cities and the Anthropocene um, and you know, questions about climate justice. And if you think that 50% of the world's population um, live in cities, um, cities actually become a pivot through which you might think about questions of climate change um, and multi-species justice. And in many ways, cities are the products um, and, and both the products and the producers of the Anthropocene. Um, I want to kind of maybe come up with four provocations or four, four questions, and I'll, I'll be very, very short. Um, but it's about how might we think um, of justice in a climate-changed world, and what kinds of questions do we might, you know, might we ask um, in relation to this? And my first one is about, you know, how do we think about our relations to nature, or what counts as nature in the Anthropocene or in a climate-changed world? Now, if you look at um, rates of animal movement across the world, it's actually, at the current times, it's about 10,000 times faster than the background rate. A lot of people argue that actually we are in a kind of second Panagia or a new supercontinent that's been brought about by kind of you know, global mobility and climate change and so on and so forth. Um, and the assemblages of biodiversity that you begin to see are actually very, very different. Now, you can think about invasive species, and I know that's a big, big issue in Australia, but take the example of rats. You know, they spread to almost every continent. In many parts of the world, they're actually, they've kind of um, driven out native pollinators and so on and so forth. But what rats are also doing in, in many ecosystems, they're actually carrying out the work of pollination. So they drive species extinct, but then they start taking on those roles. So we might think, well, you know, are the rats the kind of new biota that we have in the Anthropocene? And what should our relations to them be? Um, Similarly, one might think of parakeets in London, which, you know, have the populations have exploded um, because of climate change. You know, these were brought through, brought as commodities, um, as part of kind of capitalist uh, commodities in exchange and so on and so forth. Um, and then should parakeets now be thought of as the native biota of London? My second provocation then is about thinking of economic production and the relations of production um, in, in cities um, so if you think about, for instance, chicken, chicken are the world's most common bird now. Um, you know, about 60 billion apparently are slaughtered annually, and their bones have become a part of the Anthropocene stratigraphy. But if you kind of think beyond the history of the broiler chicken and, you know, what kinds of um, histories underpinned um, the growth of chicken, is actually black plantation labor in America, which is really, really important in, um, in starting the first chicken farms at that time. Um, and again, you know, if you think of the consumption of chicken, recipes like um, you know, KFC and so on and so forth actually came from you know, the southern states um, in the U.S. So there's another kind of cultural history to the chicken that doesn't really become evident if you look at it just from the surface. But equally, if there are 60 billion chicken being slaughtered um, the world over, 
then you know where is the feed coming from so in the sort of anthropocene economy or a climate change economy it's not just humans that are consumers but also the animals my third provocation then um is about is about politics so we we talked quite a bit about um climate change and you know the kind of politics around climate change and why is it working or why is it not um, but I think there's a kind of there's a danger here, or at least something which the left doesn't quite get about you know climate change skepticism. So I think you know the way I would see a lot of anti-climate change politics operates in three grounds. The first is agnotology, so there's a breeding of skepticism that climate change isn't happening. But that goes in hand, hand in hand with market solutions, right? So we buy into this market ideology, thinking, well, you know. The, the other way we can solve the climate crisis is through markets. Markets will solve the problem. And I think the third part to this is geoengineering. That, well, actually, okay, skepticism is a smokescreen that you can talk about um, markets. And the third thing is, well, we'll have a technological fix. You know, this is part of the same package that I think you know, a lot of left politics doesn't really get about the kind of neoliberal machine and its politics of climate. So what kinds of resistance do we have to these modes of operation. And finally, um, I think we really need to think about everyday life. What does everyday life in the in cities mean? Um, and you know, how might everyday life be a site of resistance? Um, I think one worrying, uh, really worrying trend globally in cities um, is about you know what my um, colleague um, Ashamin calls catastrophist biopolitics. So there's a kind of new biopolitics that's emerging in cities that actually is about displacing resilience. So the whole mantra of resilience that you hear is about displacing this onto communities. Um, so, and that kind of, I think is, is, is exceptionally uh, um, problematic given you know, catastrophic events in cities, floods, fires, and so on and so forth. And here the everyday I think becomes important because the everyday is not just the mundane, but the everyday is something which can really rupture, especially in this sort of climate changed um, world. So my final point then is what modes of resistance do we have um, to think about climate change and climate um, justice and how might it operate through these four registers that I talked about? Um, so my interest in this particular topic is particularly to do with rivers and river systems. I think I need to um, bypass the technology. One of the um, particular interests that I have in, in looking at interventions around multi-species justice and climate change is the issue of the rights of nature. In the symposium that we had yesterday, I addressed climate change and non-human non relations through two lenses, and one was the rights of nature and the other was relational ontologies. My interest in rivers lies particularly in the fact that, of course, it is fundamental to the species' ability to thrive, Secondly, because the state of water in my own country, New Zealand, is um, designated by the OECD to be one of the worst in the OECD countries in 2017, and the impact of that on species. And finally, of course, because of the climate change impact on river systems themselves. The rights of nature movement, then, is one that is particularly interesting and, and has taken a great deal of interest, especially around rivers. Recently, in 2017, as some of you will know, the Whananui River in Aotearoa, New Zealand, was designated with the legal rights of personhood. 
The Settlement Act, which designated the Whanganui River as legal personhood, was the outcome of a long period of um, negotiations between Māori tribes along the river and the Crown. And the settlement was the resolution of those claims over a period of time. It certainly attracted a great deal of interest. The Ta'awa Tupua Act, the Whanganui River Act, was the first time that a whole of river approach was recognised within legislation within New Zealand. It recognises the river as a spiritual and physical entity that supports and sustains the life and the and natural resources within the river and the health and well-being of the tribes and the communities along the river. It recognises the Whanganui River as a living being, an ancestor in fact, which flows from the mountains to the sea and incorporates all of its physical and metaphysical elements. The Act thus subscribes legal personhood with recognised rights and values of its own to the whole of the Whanganui River. Under the Act, the parties to the Act, the Whanganui tribes and the Crown, agreed to appoint two guardians, one representing the Crown and one representing the tribes. The agreement includes um, the development of sets of values, recognising the intrinsic characteristics of the river and providing guidance to decision makers and the development of a whole of river strategy by collaboration between tribes, between central and local government, between commercial and recreational re users and other community groups. The goal of the strategy is to ensure the long-term environmental, social and well-being of the river. The caveats attached to the thank you. The caveats attached to the agreement include that property rights are not interfered with, and that to Potupua's consent or the guardian's consent is not required for the use of water from the river or from its tributaries. The use of water, for instance, is subject to a review relating to issues of rights and interests of river. Arguably, the claim that the Whanganui River Act refers to the whole of the Whanganui River and all that is protected in terms of its health and well-being is contradicted by the separation from the water from the river itself. The Whanganui River Act, like other acts similar to that, represent major shifts towards recognising the inherent rights of nature as a living, living being. Yet the rights of nature in this act nonetheless remain selective in Aotearoa New Zealand and have not formally been adopted into statutory or constitutional law. In India in 2017, two rulings, March of the 20th and 22nd, ruled that the rivers Ganja and Yumana, their tributaries and their glaciers and the catchments feeding these rivers, as well as other natural objects in the same state, have rights as a juristic legal person uh, and living entity. The judgment states, when human, whereas human rights occupy centre stage and deal with human conflict, loss of natural resources threatens human life itself. We must understand that the fundamental rights on which human survival depends are nature's rights. In both cases, the High Court established the natural objects as legal minors and conferred guardianship responsibilities on several individuals within the state government. 
In both cases, the High Court established the natural objects as legal, legal minors. While the judgments of this nature provide powerful examples of the rights of nature movement, in this case, these rights were underpinned by broad definitions of harm, such as to diminish the likelihood of any successful implementation. However, the High Court's findings that declared the Ganges and Yamana rivers to be legal persons were suspended by the Supreme Court on a number of things, but primarily arguing that rivers cannot be considered as living entities. So while the evolution of rights of nature laws can be seen as an important step towards a bioethical framework for justice for non-human entities, there is an element in which these findings also demonstrate a taken-for-granted anthropocentric view of human exceptionalism, in which the ability of river systems to provide optimum conditions for flourishing of species of human or non-human associations of the river takes second place to the rights of property. Nonetheless, the Whanganui River Act has motivated important river restoration projects which draw on relational ontologies to privilege the voice of the river. And I just want to quickly go over, over, over that. Because driven by the declining state of New Zealand's waters and yet motivated by the Whanganui River Act, this particular project uh, actually asks what would happen if we were to listen to the voice of the river? What would the river say? For such endeavours, however, to have long-term success in species justice, property rights, the rights to abstraction, to pollution of any part of the waterway, must be severely curtailed. On this account, the question is what might such a socio-political framework look like? Today, the last-minute legal challenges to the Carmichael River came down. And one of the things that it demonstrates is the reification of property rights over the rights of species. The rights of nature movement is one way of intervening with such movements. Because the Carmichael River project, as you know, has five or six more in its pipeline. And river systems and aquifers and living streams are casualties of, of such of such. Um, of such projects. So the question that I'm left with as I look at this is, what kind of socio-political economic framework would it take to embed at its heart the capacity for flourishing? And what kind of concrete steps would move that forward? The rights of, never, rights of nature movement is one such possibility, but it's clear that at the present moment, we still have a long way to go. Thank you very much. Okay, so we have a big picture of a climate-changed world and discussions about uh, climate change and resilient pathways. We've got a picture of human well-being that's problematic. We have a picture of uh, everyday life in cities as a crucial part of thinking about Anthropocene economies. Uh, and then we have this amazing example of actually granting personhood uh, to a river and what that means. So I think I'm just going to ask 
each of you a question. If you've got questions for each other, you can break in. But one of the things that always gets me about um, the crowds that come to these events is everybody's always looking for something to do. Everyone's always looking for some sort of way forward, way to act after this. So I'm going to ask that kind of question uh, of everyone uh, following on your talk. So if it's not fair, just say it's not fair and we can come up with a different question. But um, Petra, <coughs> so you you mentioned, and of course we're interested in this here uh, in Sydney, of course, because we've done resilience planning in Sydney and resilience is a growing concept in the city and the state. You know, forget the federal government, it's not happening at that level. But how, I guess the question is, how do you design not just climate resilient pathways, but how do you encompass justice in both the development and the goal of such pathways? Well, thank you for that question. <laughs> I think, as I very, very briefly showed, the way to incorporate justice into these climate resilient pathways or climate resilient development pathways is at least for me really based on understanding what has meaning to people, what people value, what people care about, what they want to protect, what people understand as um, something they could possibly let go of and something that would absolutely be an unacceptable loss to them to understand how they make trade-offs and to bring these notions of values and aspirations to a forum where they can be debated and exchanged, where people listen to each other and understand what the differences are, and what they care and value about, and potentially identify common values that they want to put as priorities into what we call on the adaptation front adaptation pathways, right? We don't think about adaptation as just an intervention or some kind of infrastructure it needs to put in place, but really a process of negotiation, 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 deliberation, debate. And I think you and I have talked about this before. It's always astonishing what people bring to the fore as things that are meaningful. And, and often, you know, I, I look at my climate change colleagues and often we think, wow, God, we hadn't even thought about that. But this is what drives people, and I think this is where justice comes in. We cannot possibly have adaptation or resilience pathways with pathways without understanding what people care about. And I think the disconnect between state-level policy or even city-level policy and what people value and care about and want to defend and protect is astonishing. And justice means to overcome that gap. So, Kritika. One of the things that struck me about your presentation was that slide about the food system. Uh, the slide about the food system and the damage to both ecosystems and human health. Right? So clearly, <coughs> industrialized agriculture has a, uh, a development problem, maldevelopment problem, given the harm done to both human and non-human. And then you went on to talk about a different conception of well-being. And I guess the question is, how do you imagine a food system? with a different conception of well-being, or, or maybe an energy system, or a communication system, or a transport system. But how, how, how do you rethink those things that we engage with every day in, in, a, in a way that sort of reconceptualizes well-being? So I guess it, it, it's a question of thinking about some of the basic principles that I was trying to um, reflect on in the talk. Um, so what is it? What would it be like to eat or to travel 
or to uh, communicate like any other animal. So if you if you, if one starts with that question and then starts to then thinks about what 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 would what an alternative system would look like, I think that's where we would go. So if you're thinking about food, for example, um, I I would argue that um, perhaps what we would need to kind of move towards is along the lines of the hunter-gatherer societies from the past and this emerging archaeological and social science and historical evidence that if you're thinking about actual human well-being, it seems quite possible that societies from, from prehistoric times had higher levels of well-being than many of us do. So, um, but given that we don't live in such societies and most of us, at least in this room, are connected to food systems that are really far away from those sorts of ways of uh, securing and consuming food, I would think there are other immediate steps that one could take. So for example, if you're thinking about contemporary agriculture, it is well established that animal agriculture, among the different kinds of intensive agricultures that there are there, is, has perhaps the most devastating impacts on, on habitats, on individual animals, and on marginal people. So, I, so in, in terms of like a concrete step, and I, I'm not very good at doing concrete steps, but <laughs> as you probably made out from my talk, uh, that would be one thing to think about, right? So here we're not, talk, it's very much like Petra. This is not about like having one universal answer for people across the world and from different societies, but thinking about what the most appropriate answer is for the kind of societies that each one of us lives in and the systems that we are a part of. So, so there are multiple answers to your Questions that help. Armand, let me follow up with you on that, and it's a good it's a good segue because most of us do live in cities. This crowd is mostly going to come from around here. I really did want to ask you a question about chickens as exploited workers, but we can talk about that. <laughs> but I, I guess the question, I mean, obviously, you know, so the question is, how does everyday life in the city um, look different, or how is the everyday crucial? to, um, and shifts in the everyday, right? So yes, don't eat fried chicken, well, don't eat chicken, right? So, but what other sorts of shifts in everyday life in the city in particular? And I guess it's the same, you know, it could be food system, it could be transport, it could be energy, but what, what sorts of real everyday shifts are you thinking about when it comes to urban transformations? I think um, probably two dimensions to this. Um, the first and I think there's a kind of range of micro practices in the urban that you actually witness, which are about dealing with, with precarity, right? Um, so I will, you know, we do some work on informal settlements in, in Delhi and, and so on and so forth, where actually um, there's a lot of urban cultivation that you see. Um, you see, um, you know, other kinds of micro practices in, in terms of actually solidarity um, informal networks that are formed that actually allow people to to deal with um, the shocks and so on and so forth that you witness with climate, with, with the Anthropocene and cities. Um, but I think the danger is, and this is, um, I'm going to be a bit provocative of it, um, is then to say that, well, this is great, you know, let's reduce state intervention and let communities be resilient. And that's precisely the UN habitat mantra, resilience, resilience, resilience. And that comes with that ploy of withdrawal of the state, you know, and now we displace the whole thing onto communities that then be resilient. And I think that that is where I think, you know, the fault lines lie. Yes, there are these sort of everyday practices, 
but there's also the kind of mantra then of resilience to say, okay, now you get on with the business and you know with your business and we'll carry on as usual. So that's where. And then to to Makiri, this this whole idea of the well-being of a river, thinking about thinking about the well-being of a river, thinking like a river, thinking with a river, thinking of a river as as deserving of this sort of well-being that we we held um, to humans. I guess the, the the question there is what what can we learn from not the the um, the example of personhood, but what that actually entails to manage. And you mentioned the kind of management processes and the interactions and the collaboration um, in the, uh, not just in the application, but in the understanding uh, of well-being. And I guess, is that is that process, so not just the model, but the, the process, is that something, getting back to the first question I, uh, I asked Petra, is that a way to design uh, just pathways in a climate change world? You know, um, what I what I find really interesting in in this particular case with the Whanganui River and the project, the freshwater river system project that has come out of that, in part come out of that, is is exactly that that approach to how do we understand, how do we consider the well-being of of the river. Um, and this idea that we come to understand that by listening to those constitutive elements of the river, because the Whanganui River Act, which was about resolving long-standing conflict between the tribes and the crown over the river and the treatment of the river, etc., etc., recognize the whole of the river. And when I say recognize the whole of the river, it wasn't just the river banks and the river bed and, you know, the water, although that's an interesting question of how that was treated, but this whole river system from the mountains to the sea and everything that goes around that. And what this um, particular freshwater restoration project working with the Whanganui River and other rivers that are highly, highly polluted in New Zealand is doing is actually engaging with all of those species that are in the river to understand what how those species interact what are the conditions that each of those species need in order to flourish in order to achieve well-being and that's that notion of environmental justice right David that you and others have talked about which is how do we create the conditions or how do we ensure the capacity for flourishing because the capacity for flourishing is absolutely essential for life to be maintained and when we so in the case of the Whanganui River one of the issues there was um, the diversion of the headwaters um, another issue of various means of abstraction and so on and so forth talking about agriculture, major, major issues of ag agriculture in terms of the river systems in Aotearoa, New Zealand. <clears throat> so when we, um, when we examine, as, as Dan Hikaroa is doing, um, what these voices of the river are saying, we are looking 
closely at what what are the things that are impeding there. I'm reminded of um, the same pro process in a coal mine spill in the Athabasca River in Canada, where when uh, remediation etc was being looked at and when the whole thing kind of came up in the first place, the owners of the coal mine concerned um, didn't want to acknowledge some of the impacts on some of the species of that river. And it was by going to the communities that live along the river, by engaging in depth in what those species, the conditions of those species are and should be, that not only remediation, but also a form of justice was enabled to come forward. So. The project, this this project involving the restoration, also one of the things that it does is it seeks to reconnect people with the river system. So it engages with people by um, asking questions about the narratives of the river. It asks questions about the relationships of communities with the river. Um, it asks questions about the relationship between the eels and the species and the fish and the invertebrates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's based around a notion of relationality, and um, it seems to me that for any form of environmental justice and multi-species justice and multi-species equality to emerge the rights of species to those conditions for flourishing are absolutely essential. And how do we achieve that? Because the problem is, of course, and here's what happened with the Whanganui River, um, projects that were already abstracting water from that river remained. In the case of the Te Uruwera Park, which was also given legal personhood, um, an existing mining project stayed and clearly those projects interfere with the capacity for flourishing and so we have a problem. I would like to ask at some point, I mean a thought experiment for Australians given the decision of the Queensland government today is whether we can apply this idea of personhood to groundwater systems and not just river systems and what, what would that mean and what would that look like? So I want to thank all of the panelists. I want you all to join me in thanking all the panelists and thank you for some great questions. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.